Welcome to Showboat, a series of podcasts from the battleship North Carolina in Wilmington. I'm your host, Mary Ames Booker, ship's curator. Together, we'll discover the stories of an extraordinary ship that steamed into history, what makes her tick and keeps her going, and her vital contributions today. Join us as we share her adventures and celebrate the thousands of men who served on the most highly decorated American battleship of World War II. Today we are talking with Commander Chuck Gore about the ship's navigation system and the men who ensured that the 35,000 ton, 729 foot long battleship steamed without incident and safely reached her destinations. Commander Gore spent 24 years in the U.S. Navy serving on five ships. Then he became an elementary school teacher and after his second retirement he became a volunteer on the showboat nearly 10 years ago. You will often find Chuck in the chart house during our program days, and we are going there today. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today on our podcast, Finding Your Way at Sea. Hi, Mary Ames. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about navigation on the battleship. Right now, we're on the O4 level, aft of the pilot house. The captain and navigator each had small, modest sleeping quarters on this level for use while the battleship was at sea. Each compartment contained a bed, desk, sink, phone for communications with the bridge, and gyro compass repeaters for monitoring ship's movements. There was a small head with a shower adjacent to the sea cabins. Only these officers had at-sea staterooms in addition to those they used in port, which are two levels below. These extra accommodations were necessary because the captain and navigator's responsibilities be dictated that they be close at hand to the bridge while the ship was underway. The captain was ultimately responsible for everything that happened on the ship, and the navigator was responsible to him for the movement of, sh of the ship through the sea. How many officers and men were assigned to the navigation division? Well, it was one of the smaller departments on the ship. Uh, the navigator himself was the head of the department. He was a commander, usually the third highest ranking officer on the ship behind the commanding officer and the executive officer. He had one or two junior officers beneath him in training to be navigator. And the division consisted of around 27 enlisted personnel headed by a chief quartermaster, three qualified quartermasters or more, an aerographer's mate who was responsible for weather observation and forecasting. There was a yeoman who was uh, tasked with administrative duties in the department. And there were also probably around 15 uh, unrated seamen who were in various stages of training to become qualified quartermasters. And what were the quartermaster's duties? Primarily, the uh, quartermaster of the watch was responsible to the officer of the deck on the bridge for keeping an accurate plot on the bridge of the ship's track, for maintaining the ship's uh, deck log, and for uh, weather observations and other administrative duties on the bridge. So to be a qualified quartermaster of the watch took several years of training and that was probably their lead responsibility as far as being qualified. As far as other duties, they were responsible for 
administering the chart portfolio of the ship, which consisted of uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of charts from around the world. But they had to keep those up to date whenever they were sailing in waters covered by those charts. There were a number of publications that were required for them to maintain. During restricted maneuvering, quartermasters took on extra responsibilities. Normally, a bosun mate of the watch would steer the ship during routine operations, but whenever there was uh, restricted maneuvering necessary, a quartermaster took over the ship's wheel, and there were also navigation team responsibilities for taking bearings and recording uh, events that were going on uh, with respect to the operation of the ship. So the quartermasters, uh, they kept themselves quite busy. They were also responsible, not many people know this, but they were responsible for winding and keeping all the clocks around the ship corrected. So on a weekly basis, they would have to go around and wind all the clocks and make sure they were all correct and so that everybody was uh, operating under the same time frame. Two of the showboat's quartermasters were interviewed about their experiences. First, Cecil Jones, who reported aboard July 1941 and was detached in August 1944. One night when we were out at sea in the Pacific, uh, on this uh, after chart table down there in the navigating room, the navigator and the chief quartermaster work there. They go out together and take sights together. The chief quartermaster's got the stopwatch and navigators taking the sights, you know, and he's writing them all down. Well, on the other side of the table, the assistant navigator and the first class, who was myself, we go out and we take our own stars independent of them but so we have a comparative fix you know after we work all the sites out well this night uh, the assistant navigator was sick and couldn't come up on the bridge so commander van meter told me he said jones i want you to take sites tonight for the assistant navigator and so i got the second class quartermaster to take time for me we came back in the pilot house and i was working on my side there and joe ringhofer and Van Meter working on their side, and every star I got, I mean, just come right into a perfect pinpoint. It's unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't even do it on purpose if you wanted to. There's always a gap in there, and you take the center of the gap and where the stars cross, you know, intersect. But every one of them were just a perfect pinpoint. So when Navigator got through working his out, he said, how'd your stars come out, Jones? Well, I just took my work around and showed it to him, and boy, he was astounded at the way it came out. Because his did have a little uh, opening in there, and he'd put right in the middle, which brought us to the same conclusion. But he took my, my work and wrote on there the date and the time and the latitude and the longitude of the ship, and he put Jones's fix and he signed it, T.J. Van Meter, Commander, United States Navy. And uh, then we'd always set that dead reckoning analyzer down there in the chart room, you know. Every time we got a fix, we would, uh, SAR sites, we'd set that dead reckoning analyzer down there. And then, of course, the tracer would trace the path of the ship during that lapse time till the next morning. Well, then if we couldn't get stars, we'd use that dead reckoning position, which was infrequent. We hardly ever had to use it, but once in a while we did. And, and often when we couldn't get morning stars, we'd get a morning sunline at 10 o'clock. 
and that'd give you an angle like this. Then we'd get a LAN at noon, which would give you a flat latitude line, and then around 2 o'clock we'd get another afternoon sun. We would advance the morning sun to noon and retard the afternoon sun to noon. That gives you a fix just like a star sight, see? And then we'd use that as a noon position there and, uh, and check the dead reckoning tracers, see how far off we were, whatever. Cecil was really a star performer on the battleship. He moved up the ranks quickly. Uh, we Navy types, we think of chiefs, chief petty officers as being these old grizzled guys, but uh, Cecil, Cecil made chief petty officer eight days before his 21st birthday, which was moving up quickly. And I have to tell another story about one of the senior quartermasters on the North Carolina, a guy named uh, Joe Ringhofer. Uh, Joe came aboard the battleship uh, right before commissioning as a bugler. He was a bugler first class, which is like a seaman first class, non-rated. And it just so happened that uh, the buglers berthed in the same compartment as the quartermasters. And the quartermasters got a hold of Ringhoffers and said, Joe, you are never going to get ahead being a bugler. You need to be a quartermaster. So they even filled out a request chit for him to give to his division officer so that he could transfer to the navigation department, which Ringhofer turned in and it was approved and he became a quartermaster striker. And lo and behold, within three years, Ringhofer had moved up the ranks where he became a chief quartermaster himself and was the leading assistant to the navigator on the ship. So uh, in those days, uh, guys moved up fast and that's what happens when you're operating at sea all the time doing, doing your job. showboat had five navigators during her years in service, all Navy commanders. They were Glisson, Stryker, Van Meter, Tolly, and Overham. In his written history, Joe Stryker explained how he became the showboat's second navigator. Lieutenant Commander Stryker had served in the submarine squadron and then the mine force, escorting the showboat on the eastern seaboard. Admiral Ron Henderson, director of the battleship's tour guide and ambassador program, shares the recollection. When I was not escorting the North Carolina, I was making runs up the Hudson River to Iona Island, a mine depot near West Point, bringing down mines to the destroyers as fast as we could. These were, as I remember, 200-pound mines. We carried two 500-pound mines. If we ever found a submarine when we were with the North Carolina, we were scared to death that we'd have to drop one of these depth charges because with the shallow depths off the continental limit, it probably would have blown us right out of the water. I worked with the North Carolina for several months and worked up a very good rapport with Captain Badger. I sort of anticipated what he wanted me to do. The night before Christmas in 1941, right after Pearl Harbor, we were both coming into Norfolk. He was leading me up the channel and the fog set in. He had to anchor. He asked his navigator where he was and the navigator had to ask the quartermaster. The quartermaster pointed to a buoy on the chart and said that they were at that buoy and gave the number. When the fog rose, the captain saw they were not at that buoy. They were further up the channel. In the meantime, I had sneaked around them and gone home. I got home and got ready to go out and do my Christmas shopping because I hadn't had a chance to do that yet. 
My wife was in tears. She said, a Marine came here just before you got home and said that if you were in 50 miles of Norfolk, he was supposed to find you because he has a message for you. The Marine had left this note. It was from the executive officer of the North Carolina, Commander Shepard. It said, stand by for a rapid transfer. This is a boost, not a kick. I waited for a while and I got a telephone call from the ship saying that the captain had fired his navigator when he got into port. He had had that trouble with him for months. He had called Washington and told them he wanted me for his relief. Washington had told Captain Badger that I was only a fitted officer, that I could not serve aboard a combatant ship. Captain Badger said, well, you birds up there get him on board my ship tomorrow on Christmas Day or we're going to go to sea the next day without a navigator. So at midnight I got my orders to report on board. I call that a fluke because I ended up with a fine job. Chuck, tell us about the navigator's responsibilities. Their responsibility, as I mentioned earlier, primarily they're the CO's right-hand man for making sure that the ship is navigating safely and uh, efficiently. They're responsible for determining where the ship is and it's headed in the right direction so they get to where they want to go on time. Uh, the navigator also was responsible for the safe and correct movement of the ship within formations that the battleship might be in, uh, advising the CO on that whenever they might be changing stations or changing formation. The navigator was usually right there with the CO, making sure that things were done correctly. Now, the navigators obviously spent a lot of time with the commanding officer and one of the navigators, Kemp Tolley, had some recollections of that time period with the CO. I was always on call. It was an exhausting year, and I lost weight. I was really debilitated at the end of this year because I was up an hour before sunrise, normally with the crew, the same in the evening at sunset. You had general quarters until an hour after sunset. I would have to take star sights morning and evening, and at noon, a sunset at noon. But the worst part of it was that the skipper, all of them, of course, were a little reluctant to leave the bridge except for calls of nature and to take catnaps because the ships, particularly at night, they were all operating without lights and within 500 yards of each other, not much more than two or three ship lengths apart, and a wrong turn could be disastrous. It would mean losing two major ships. Once or twice it happened, and a battleship ran into another battleship. The Tennessee rammed somebody in just such case, and it could mean the loss of thousands of men. So the skipper was out there on deck practically all night, and he got lonesome. They would nab me out there, and that was a conversation piece for them. I had been around, and they wanted also to unburden themselves. Many a night I staggered out there half dead on my feet. Chuck, is there another story that you would like to share? Another one of the navigators, uh, Commander Van Meter, um, he had an interesting story to tell here, too, so let me just quote him. Another amusing incident I can think of coming out of the island of Majuro in the Marshall Islands one afternoon while Captain Thomas was commanding. This was a quite narrow entrance from the harbor with a strong current. Consequently, we needed to maintain our course. An LST, a landing ship, uh, was patrolling outside the entrance and was on a collision course with us as we were coming out. 
The captain had to stop the engines of the showboat, much to his distress, to let the LST clear. He indignantly sent a message to the LST saying, Are you familiar with the rules of the road? The answer came back, negative. That was rough duty on those LSTs and LCTs, landing craft tanks. Those little ships were put out there and just up and down and stuff like that. Most of them had young reserve officers who had never been to sea as commanding officers. And I'll tell you, boy, they did a job. Van Meter goes on to say, I had been navigator for the North Carolina for two years. I felt that was long enough for any one job during wartime. It was a gentleman's job, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Frankly, I was afraid I would get careless with the knowledge of the job. Let me just say, I think his story about the CO of that LST speaks to a larger issue in the war, and that was the tremendous manpower required for our warfighting engine uh, for the United States. Uh, this goes for Army, Navy, all the services. Uh, we had to recruit people to go out there and do jobs that they had no training for whatsoever, and we didn't have time to train them. We just put them out there and say, go do the best you can. And, um, and, and as Van Meter said, they did a heck of a job. Okay, so we're in the chart house right now, which is the name given to the navigation room where most of the navigational duties were performed, and we're just after the bridge, so it's a quick two seconds between the two spaces, which is important because we're keeping the bridge informed of, uh, of where we are at all times with our navigation duties here. So looking around the chart house, the, probably the dominant feature that you see is a large chart desk or chart table, and that's where the primary navigation chart would be uh, laid out for the navigator to do his uh, tracking, charting, positioning, uh, computations, and so forth. And underneath there, there are a number of large drawers that contain the charts for the area that we're currently sailing in. And those charts would be all kept up to date uh, with any changes that might have occurred uh, recently as far as repositioning of buoys, a new shipwreck, other uh, navigational data. So looking uh, over across the top of that chart desk is our dead reckoning tracer. This was a device that was used to maintain a surface plot of the area surrounding the battleship. It's a table with a glass top with a piece of tracing paper on top of it and projected onto the bottom of that is a lighted compass rose which moves about the table as the ship maneuvers through the ocean. So we're tied directly to the gyro compass and the pitometer log. So any change in course and speed will be reflected by the movement of the compass rose. And we're in the center, own ship is in the center of that compass rose. So that keeping track of us and then off to the side, we plot all the ships that are in the vicinity. So it's as if you're looking down from the sky at a portion of the ocean where the battleship is in the middle and all the other units around us are, are being tracked on there as well. So it's a good device for that. 
Also within the Dead Reckoning Tracer is in the works, the mechanics on the side is a latitude and longitude readout. So anytime we're in the open ocean and we get a fix, we will go into the latitude and longitude gearing and update our lat long on the device so that when we go back, say, six hours later and look at the latitude and longitude reading, it should reflect where we are currently based on dead reckoning. So that's another important feature of the DRT, the dead reckoning tracer. Also, next to the DRT is a fathometer. That's important for maintaining a picture of the depth of the water. Normally, an open ocean operation where the depth might be 5,000 feet or a thousand fathoms we wouldn't be manning the fathometer because we we're not in harm's way and we don't really care whether the water is a thousand fathoms deep or two thousand fathoms deep but when we go in restricted waters we're going to have somebody on there at all times keeping us advised of the depth of the water in case we start running into shoal water also in the chart house here we have the uh, first iteration of Loran that was installed on the North Carolina we have this receiver this radio receiver called the DSM1 which received Loran signals from shore-based transmitters for uh, use in electronic navigation this was something that was very early in its infancy in the uh, development stages in World War II the North Carolina had this DSM-1 installed in uh, October of 1944, but unfortunately, with the system being in its infancy, it wasn't much value out in the South and the Western Pacific, so um, its use was very limited there. We also have a desk and a typewriter for the uh, yeoman to do his administrative responsibilities. While the quartermaster of the watch was uh, maintaining a rough deck log on the bridge of any course, speed changes, maneuvers uh, that the ship was conducting, any onboard evolutions like 10-hand working party was called away or some piece of equipment was declared inoperative, it would be recorded in the quartermaster's deck log and then the officer of the deck later would sign a smooth typed copy as the official document recording his time on watch. So that's what the yeoman, that was one of his responsibilities here in the navigation department was typing up the smooth deck logs for the OOD signature. You can't help but see there's a sofa in here as well, which is highly unusual. We get a lot of comments on that and people aren't expecting to see a sofa in a working space like this, but there's also a really interesting story about that from one of the navigators, Kemp Tolley. The warrant electrician and I have put the most useful after-rigging, what is known as a hot seat. This is a small, simple electrical device tatted into the cushion of the leather cover divan in the chart house. When the intended victim is comfortably seated, the juice is applied via a concealed foot pedal operated from beneath the navigator's desk. There is a yip of dismay, and the fellow rises straight up in the air. Surprisingly, Few suspect this is a booby trap. I came very nearly convincing one young lieutenant that he was developing sciatica and should have it checked out with the doctor. Some people still believe practically anything. I'm having more darn fun with this electric gadget. While I'm writing this, I have my foot on the button, and whenever any innocent victim lowers himself into the divan, I just let him have a jolt. 
Lately, I've been timing it to go with the ringing of the telephone, which seems to give them the impression they are being cut in on some new type of communication system that approaches the customer directly through the seat of his pants. What issues did early navigators have on the showboat? Well, they had a number of issues. Of course, they had to deal with the technology of the day, and there were also some other factors that came into play out in the, uh, in the Pacific as well. In that time period, open ocean navigation was almost exclusively done based on celestial navigation, which was fine. I mean, navigators have been doing celestial navigation for thousands of years, and uh, it's, it's always served mariners fairly well. But it has limitations in that it, you need good visibility. If you're in cloud cover, you can't shoot stars. And so you're handcuffed there, and plus you're limited on certain number of times a day you can do uh, celestial sightings. So that was a limitation. In the vicinity of land, navigation was usually done by visual piloting. One of the limitations we had back then, of course, there was no GPS, there was no global positioning system, uh, there were satellites were not even envisioned at that time. Uh, we were just beginning to understand long-range uh, electronic navigation. We have very little data on it. We have one quartermaster who said that uh, it was not very useful, so they tended not to uh, rely on it. So there was, there was no electronic navigation in that respect. Radar was under development. Uh, as surface search radar become more, became more advanced and refined, we were able to use uh, that signal to develop bearing and range to land masses ashore and so that became a very accurate piece of uh, navigation uh, later in the war. Admiral Stryker wrote about one of his experiences navigating in low visibility when the showboat was on the eastern seaboard in July 1942. Admiral Henderson shares the memories. Shortly after I reported on board as navigator we were ordered up to Casco Bay, which is near Portland, Maine. I'll never forget that trip, and the captain never will either, because when we got underway from Norfolk, there were no buoys, there were no radar beacons, and there were no lighthouses lighted. There was nothing on the east coast of the United States to help us with navigation, because we were afraid that we'd be helping German submarines off the coast. All we had was a sextant and our depth finders. We knew how fast we were going, we knew fairly well what our course was, we left Norfolk in a heavy overcast, and I was never able to get a sun sight or a star sight the entire trip. So I had to make that entire trip entirely on soundings. I knew that if I headed up the coast off Martha's Vineyard in that area, or if I was lucky, I would hit a place called Hydrographer's Canyon. If I did get to it, it would I would get 80 fathom soundings. Nothing anywhere near there was over 30 fathoms. This place was only about two miles wide, and from my chart, it was only about six miles long. As you can imagine, I stayed over that fathometer most of the way out. I had a wonderful man on board who later became a lieutenant commander and communications officer of the ship, Byron Phillips, who was a radio electrician at the time, and he kept the fathometer going. We finally got to my 80 fathom spot. I called the captain in and I said, we can turn north and we'll go between these two islands. That's our course for Portland, Maine. The captain said, Jesus, do you really know where we are? I said, we're right there. Look around you and see if you can find a, any other sounding of 80 fathoms anywhere near here. 
So he turned to the executive officer and said, XO, what would you do? The executive officer said, I'd get out of this fog, head south, and wait until the weather cleared, then I'd go up. But Captain Badger took a chance on me, and he said, all right, head her north. We got there. The next morning, we sighted Portland, Maine, without having seen anything since we left Norfolk. The reason I bring this up is because at that time, we had no radar. I mean, we had radar, a big bed spring up there. It would show you there was land somewhere ahead of you, perhaps, but you couldn't tell how far, and you couldn't tell where the limits of it were. We couldn't use that at all. Another major issue that afflicted the Navy out in the uh, reaches of the Western Pacific and the South Pacific were poor charts. We uh, had never really operated in some of these areas like the Mariana Islands, the Gilberts, Caroline Islands, uh, so we had very limited navigational data on these islands. And some of the charts that the battleship pulled up to use in these areas, uh, the Solomon Islands as well, if you look at the information on the chart, and this is the 1940s, it'll say, based on information from HMS Falcon in 1849. So they were dealing with information that might have been almost a hundred years old as far as depth soundings and where land masses were. Uh, so it became a real, real uh, serious problem. We have another story to tell about that. But it really was a unique experience because when we first got out there, our charts were so inefficient and so out of date that we would be ordered to go to a certain place and we'd have a hard time finding it on a chart. The first one that I can remember was when we were making our approach to Guadalcanal. I broke out our charts and I couldn't find anything listed as Guadalcanal. But I could find an island called Guadalcanar, which was the name when the Spanish charts had been made. We soon found out that nobody knew where different places were because they were Navy names, Spanish names, names from older charts and names from newer charts. Finally, the powers that be put out a table which used code names. When we were going to a place, you would see the name of the place, the latitude and the longitude, and all the other variations of the name, and then they would call it Buster or something like that. We would know when, where Buster was, but we didn't know where some of the other islands were. Finally, they came around to a good name that was on all charts. But for a year or two, we'd break out a chart, and if you didn't have your files up to date and they told you to go somewhere, you weren't quite sure where you were going. Also, the charts were very inaccurate. After the New Orleans was torpedoed by enemy cruisers and beached there to Lagi one time, a friend of mine who was a navigator over there went out and took a round of sun sights and found that according to the charts that they'd been using, he was in the middle of the lake about 50 miles up a mountain away from there. Going into Tongatabu the first time, that was to Nukulofa in Tongatabu, my chart read that there were no buoys or landmarks in that area but that there were several sunken ships. You could take your bearings on the sunken ships. That was the notice to mariners to get into this harbor. You hoped you had the right sunken ship. This is where South Dakota later went aground, and I could easily see how she did it. I think a good way to wrap up our navigating at sea discussion today would be just to do a little comparison of navigating today. I would say Probably the, the number one issue, of course, is the digital versus analog. Everything back then was on paper. It was put down by pencil. Everything, whether it was in our computers or navigation, it was all measured. 
and written down on paper uh, as opposed to today when everything is digital. On today's ships, there's a digital display on the bridge, charted area of where the ship is going, and uh, they may not even have paper charts uh, available to them. So it's all, it's all digital. Along with that, that uh, digital versus analog, there's an accuracy uh, issue as well. GPS is extremely accurate. Uh, when the system was put into operation, fully operational in the, in the 1990s, it was accurate to within 10 meters on the surface of the Earth. There's an upgrade going on right now where all the satellites are being replaced with another block of technology, and they're going to be accurate to within one foot. We know a lot more about weather now as far as predicting uh, storms and ocean currents compared to what we did back in the World War II days. So uh, the accuracy plays with the weather as well. With GPS nowadays, it is immediate and continuous, so that's a tremendous boon to navigation around the world. But what concerns would mariners have today? I have to say that with GPS, if you're completely uh, reliant on that, you could be vulnerable because uh, we, we all know that those satellites could be subject to hacking and uh, jamming of the signals. So it's, it's not all... It's not all good news with that sort of capability as well. I understand they're, they're back to teaching navigation at the Naval Academy and the Navy ROTC units uh, after a period of about uh, 10 or 15 years where they didn't teach it. So I think that's a good thing to have that as a backup because it's been used for thousands of years and uh, it's, it's still usable um, using those stars. So hopefully they're not totally reliant on GPS. It's been my pleasure to talk to you today. I hope you've learned a little bit about navigating at sea, finding your way on the showboat. Many thanks to Commander Gore, Admiral Henderson, and Frank Glossel, Director of the Friends of the Battleship, for participating in the Showboat Podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I'm Mary Ames Booker, host and producer of the podcast. Showboat is a series of podcasts about the Battleship North Carolina in Wilmington, North Carolina. Visit us online at www.battleshipnc.com. The showboat welcomes visitors daily. In 2020, the Battleship North Carolina received an NC CARES Humanities Relief Grant from the North Carolina Humanities Council, www.nchumanities.org. Funding for NC CARES has been provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, as part of the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act Economic Stabilization Plan.